Hi, and welcome back to the Efficient Frontiers International Case Study Podcast. My name is Sam Shane, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Craig Wright. Today's case study is entitled Merchants, Miners, and Mules, the Bayrob Case. Most people would describe this case as a cybercrime case. And it's true, it has all the features of a very intricate cybercrime. However, for our purposes today, we're going to look at one facet of the criminal activity they engaged in. In December 2019, two Romanian nationals were sentenced to 20 years and 18 years, respectively, for engaging in this criminal scheme. This crime began in 2007 and wasn't discovered until approximately 2015. The criminal enterprise itself ran out of Bucharest, Romania. And what was so interesting about it is they changed their tactics over time. In other words, they seem to employ a risk management approach to their criminal activities. And you'll see some of them in the details we give today. So I mentioned that this started in 2007. The group began to develop and deploy a proprietary malware and this is often referred to as a Trojan. So a Trojan is a type of malware that masquerades as a routine download request to a user with the goal being to persuade them to install it. So many of these act as unauthorized access point to a victim's computer that then allows the criminal group to access the data on that computer and to communicate with it. So this Trojan sent victims via email approximately 11 million emails that had attachments that were infected with the Trojan. You would open the email, you would click on the attachment, and that would then allow the virus to go onto your computer and start accessing the data on it. What we're actually going to look at is one particular tactic, and that tactic involved online shopping. So to properly understand how this tactic worked, Craig and I are going to try and just set up some of the basic elements you need to understand for it. Why is it that it's relatively easy to have access to a payment processor? It varies on the business that you have, the sector that it's in, and who you use as a payment processor. So as long as you're within a certain sector and within their risk appetite, they can set you up fairly quickly and give you a basic service. Whereas if you are in a high risk sector, say such as gambling, you might find it a little bit more difficult to actually get set up. I tried to buy a book on Amazon about three months ago. The transaction went through, no book arrived. I then proceeded to have this hilarious email exchange with the person who supposedly sold me the book about whether or not I'd received the book. Uh, and eventually just gave up and wrote it off as a loss just because I thought this is just too painful to do. And it only cost me eight pounds to buy the book. Can you take us in really simple terms through ordinarily when you buy something online, how does it work? So if you were to buy a, buy a product on just a simple website, you would pay using your credit or debit card. The information would then go through a payment gateway, which encrypts the data. This would send it to, for example, a payment processor or a bank. This quest then goes to Visa or MasterCard, which then goes to the customer's issuing bank. If they respond with a yes and approval that there are funds in the account and all the necessary security checks have taken place, this information then goes back down the chain again, back to the payment processor and then essentially back to the merchant and the funds will then reach the merchant's account. All that happens is a couple of seconds often and the funds can be available to the merchant very, very quickly. How does that work, though? If it happens in a couple of seconds, surely there must be a degree of, of risk assessment done by the processor whether or not to release those payments. 
Yes, very much so. I think it, it can depend on a number of things, such as the existing relationship with the merchant. So if you know the merchant, then you know that they're trustworthy and they're not just going to basically take the funds and ne never deliver the goods. Again, it depends on the sector and the industry that they're in, the deferment time of how long it might be until the merchant is able to send the goods out. If they're ordering from another country and back to, say, China, and it might take six weeks before something can be put on a shipping container. It depends on a range of different things. And sometimes, again, the bigger payment processes can put a blanket approach and anything under and over a certain amount is okay. And others take a more sort of risk-based approach and can review things individually. What sort of red flags would normally raise concern? There can be things such as velocity checks on how how much a, an individual card is used, how often and in what time frame. The IP addresses, the locations of the card. So, for example, if it's a takeaway, why are, why would this company be receiving lots of payments from another country? You can look at, uh, at transactions on an account and see are they... Are they real transactions that appear to be genuine mixed in with genuine transactions? Although sometimes that's hard to see just for looking at the account. You might need more information. Are they urgent to set the accounts up? Are they not bothered about how much it costs and they just want the account set up and they want to withdraw funds quickly? Yeah, so if it's not commercially viable, why would somebody basically do something to get their account up and running that might end up costing money in the long run? If they turn around and say, I don't care if you're going to charge me 9% per transaction, if that's massively over what a normal customer might, if they might pay 3%, why would they do that? What, what reason do they have? Is there a reason that they can't get an account elsewhere? Have they come to, say, our company because they can't get an account elsewhere? If so, why is that? Have they been closed down? Are they on the Visa and MasterCard registers? Is, what's the reason for that? Finally, we have escrow agents. Yeah, so an escrow agent is basically an account where funds are held by a third party until both parties have completed their obligations. So it can be used for many different things. It can be used when you're buying a house. It can be used when you're buying high-value goods. And it just gives people a, an element of trust that, that can get their money back from a third party who is essentially regulated, not an unknown seller, and adds another element of trust into a buying relationship. I mentioned the book. I couldn't figure out how to solve the problem. What happens when you've bought stuff online, Craig, and, and it just never arrives? Depending on how many parties are involved, so for example, if there isn't an escrow agent involved and you've just bought it from an individual seller online, there are a number of different things you could do as a consumer. You could go directly to the merchant and say, give me my money back. That doesn't always work. They're not always responsive. That could well be an initial issue in the first place. You could go to the payment processor and say, again, I want a refund. I never received this product. They might turn around and say, no, you, we can't make that decision. You need to speak to the merchant. If you bought it from somewhere like eBay, it, again, it could be a similar issue. It's so easy for a merchant to not respond to you. They could just block you if they are sort of fraudulent. There's so many ways that they can just basically not speak to you. And if that is meant to be your only option, it can become quite difficult. And the more parties involved, escrow agents and delivery companies, the more complicated it gets and the harder it is for you to get your money back and more and more time has elapsed and your money is closer and closer to being gone. I guess that's why reviews are such an important determinant for people in terms of who they decide to buy their goods from. 
I mean, I personally always look at reviews. I just think to myself, if I bought something and it didn't turn up and then hindsight, I go back and look at the last five or six reviews and they all say the same thing, I could have saved myself the time and efforts. So I think as long as you believe the reviews are legitimate and if you look on in various sources, it very much, again, gives you more trust in what you're buying. What's interesting about this case that we're about to dive into is that there's a period of time or delay that hunting around trying to find somebody to resolve the problem means you lose a couple of days in the process, don't you? Yeah, and I, due to, especially nowadays with how easy it is to withdraw money and do faster payments, literally every minute counts. In the sort of past 10, 15 years or so, you're able to transfer money quicker and quicker, and there's more and more steps involved in in making a payment, or at least sort of getting your payment eventually to um, a third party. So Craig and I are now going to take you through why all these features were known by this group and how they utilize them. What we're actually going to look at is the Bay Rob Group's tactic in relation to online auction fraud. And the fraud in question mainly involved automobiles, keeping in mind the features we just discussed, how they managed to commit the crime and how they then managed to get access to the proceeds that they stole from the consumers. For those of you who can't see the slides and are listening to the audio, we have up on the slide a picture of a very nice silver Jeep parked in a residential driveway. And I have to thank Symantec, the amazing people at that company who shared online their investigation of the Bay Rob case. So the following facts are taken from the court indictment. Can you just take us through what was the first step of this auction fraud? So they would list legitimate items on eBay. It would be a genuine auction, whether the product was there or not. It'd be a genuine auction on eBay. They would get legitimate bidders on the, uh, on the item. The item would never sell, but they would have a list of people who they knew were interested and were willing to pay. So the idea here was they've set up an auction item with no intention of letting anybody actually win. Yes. What was the point of putting something online for auction if nobody wins? Because they got a list of people, effectively, who were willing to to make that payment and effectively had the funds ready and available for them and were at least interested. The auction ends. There is no winner, um, or if there is, it's somebody that the Bayer uh, people actually know and have set up. So what they do is they email all the people who were interested and all the people who bid and say, unfortunately, the car hasn't sold. However, I understand you're interested and open up discussion that way. So they'll send a file with photos of the Jeep and links to information about the car on other websites. And they just give you lots of information about the products and say, are you interested? What happens then if you click on these links, the the photographs? So if you download the picture, picture viewer, the file contains a Trojan virus and this Trojan connects to various Bayrob servers and it receives data from the user's computer and lets the fraudsters effectively know when you are going on certain websites. So if you were to go on eBay and you search for that product's listing, the Trojan virus will pick up when you have searched for that particular listing and will show a page that appears to be eBay. It looks and feels exactly like eBay and they were very meticulous about this. They There were no you know, grammar or spelling or language mistakes. It really does look like you're on eBay. If you were to go on a non-infected computer and you were to search for that particular listing, you'll just see that it doesn't exist. 
you and I've talked about some of the things you can buy online. I think there were some things like prepaid tattoos and other crazy items where one of the things we talked about was wouldn't you actually want to go see the tattoo parlor artist or in the case of a car, wouldn't you actually want to see the car? Surely you wouldn't buy a car just based on some photographs, right? Exactly. I mean, even if you can see the car's not stolen, you, you don't know if it works. You don't know if how it runs, how it feels, if how many scratches it might have on the other side. It's just not something you would do. And, and again, these guys were clever and would look at the location of you and see what, if you were able to just go and drive around the corner and go look and see if the car was there. They would eliminate those people from possible candidates to steal from because of the risk they might uh, they might reveal the scheme. But they were even better than that. You talked about if people typed in the eBay address to try and see more information about the listing and how it, the bot would send it off to a fake site that looked almost identical to eBay. They did other stuff as well, didn't they? Yeah, so you could look for autocheck.com, you could look for carfax.com, just other legitimate websites that if you search and you input vehicles registration details, it can tell you all about the car. Again, this is you sort of taking control and you're, you're not really being diverted in, down a certain path as far as you're concerned. You're doing your research, you're doing your own due diligence, whether you realize it or not. And you're looking online and, and finding out more about this auction, this offer, and everything you see is helping you sort of build up that trust. And unfortunately, the pages that you do eventually come across are hijacked and they're not real and they're not actually part of that website. Because of the risk, they might uh, they might reveal the scheme, but they were even better than that. You talked about if people typed in the eBay address to try and see more information about the listing and how it, it, the bot would send it off to a fake site that looked almost identical to eBay, but they did other stuff as well, didn't they? Yeah. So you could, you could look for autocheck.com. You could look for carfax.com, just other legitimate websites that if you search and you input vehicles registration details, it can tell you all about the car. Again, this is you sort of taking control and you're, you're not really being diverted in, down a certain path as far as you're concerned you're doing your research you're doing your own due diligence whether you realize it or not and you're looking online and googling and finding out more about this auction this offer and everything you see is helping you sort of build up that trust and unfortunately a lot of the these examples they are the pages that you do eventually come across are hijacked and they're not real and they're not actually part of that website. If you are familiar with things like AutoCheck or AutoFax, they're the sites that you can check a car that someone is claiming to sell. You put in their license plate number and you can you know, check the information about them. And they put and invested the effort as part of this scheme to create duplicates so that people think they're going on these legitimate sites. And they even went so far as they've duplicated sites that relate to the delivery of a vehicle. They're very clever, aren't they? Because they also include fake reviews they made reference to escrow agent protection, and they even had a fake chatbot set up. So if people began to ask questions about the item on the fake eBay page, for example, the bot would come up and say, can I help you? But the bot and the answers given were actually controlled by members of the Bayrob group. 
everything that you've listed, even operated phone lines and voicemail and everything that say would make you feel like you are doing your research. It's all orchestrated. They actually expect you to go do that. All the while you're thinking it's just helping you make an informed choice. It's very, very clever. So the goal now for the bad guys is how do we get the money? But essentially what they first do is they set up companies and they put out a series of advertisements seeking to recruit international transfer agents, explaining that the goal of these roles is to allow the company to legally avoid VAT on international wire transfers. They gear these ads on making look like they're on monster.com and places like that. And essentially these are mule accounts, aren't they, Craig? They are mule accounts, but they're unwilling mule accounts, which I think is is very interesting. As far, as far as they know, as you say, they're going on legitimate websites. They are, as again, on the surface, the jobs don't even always say or didn't always say work from home. They would appear to be working in a big office as part of a big corporation. Once the they had done the sort of vetting checks and they did vet all these people, you know, properly to make sure that they could be sort of, or they were the right sorts of people that they were looking for. Only then did they turn and say, unfortunately, that job isn't available anymore. However, we do have one that means you can work from home. So it's just, it's that slight difference compared to, say, other criminals and fraudsters who might just openly advertise for working from home jobs, which could be sort of easily seen. Again, it's just that extra layer that differentiates them. So we have here on the slide, for those of you following them, an example, again, thank you, Symantec, for the information of a website advertisement that they've put up. They've made it look as if it's Yahoo United States Transfers. You are assigned to our European office in Budapest. Here is the name of your transfer manager. Please contact him at this email address. For all intents and purposes, it, it looks legitimate. Yeah, and I think that's very important. I, I keep talking about the, the trust, but I think it's it's such an important thing in buying something online because you're sending off money before you've ever, you know, you don't get the product instantly. You're sending off money and hoping that someone is trustworthy enough to to send out something to you. If you go and speak to an escrow agent, they believe they're doing you know, a legitimate job. They're, they're not trying to purposely hide information. You can look online and see that it is a at least a, a formed company and you're speaking to someone who it might, you know, all they're thinking of is, you know, I hope I hit my target and I hope I do, you know, get a promotion. It, it's just it's just real communication with someone else. And it's just another sort of clever element to this. People are probably wondering, what exactly did you do as one of these international transfer agents? Consumers are buying these cars, supposed cars. They are then transferring the money as they are instructed to do by the seller, quote unquote, to one of the accounts of these international transfer agents. Okay, so this isn't going into a company account. It's going into one of their accounts. A deal is made with them where they have said, you can keep 6% of the amount to be transferred, and that's yours straight away. Or if you wait until the transfer is completed, you receive 10%. And what's the idea behind that, Craig, given the criminal element here? So anybody who chose 6%, they got that straight away. However, anyone who wanted the 10%, they were also scammed. There's, there really were no friends in all this. 
for those of you who can see the slides, we've given an example of the court document. It shows the cars. So there was a Mustang. In another case, there was a Dodge Charger. And you can see the international transfer agents or the mules, they're identified by their name. So they aren't even using the company name of the company that supposedly they were being recruited to work for. So we have these transfer agents. So people have tried to buy the car. They've transferred money to the address they were instructed to or the account. That account is controlled by these recruited mules and they're instructed to send it through to a money service business. And what they don't know is once it arrives at the money service business, a further instruction is given through the Bayrob group whereby that money is then transferred to mules in Romania and other Eastern European jurisdictions. We know a little bit of, about the levels of knowledge, don't we, between our American mules and our Eastern European mules, don't we? Yeah, so in most cases, the vast majority of the money mules in the US didn't know that that's what they were doing. Whereas the mules in Europe, they appeared to at least have a bit more of an understanding. So they quite often used fake documents and fake ID. So the, there's certainly an element that they are, if not directly part of the criminal gang, they certainly have so, at least some small association. Yeah, and they finish off the circle because they are the ones who arrange for the money to arrive at the members of the Bayrob group in Romania. That's the final step of the laundering process. Now, we actually have copies of the court documents that show some of the transactions. There's kind of two interesting features of these transactions, Craig, aren't there? Yeah, so I, you can see first off that all the transactions are they're below $10,000. It's not a nice round number. It's $7,707.38. There's two specific bank accounts it goes to. The victims are from, they're from all over the country. So it's, it's just helping split up those payments just that little bit more and keep them under automatic detection radars. It was discovered the Bayrob group were keeping spreadsheets. And for some of the other types of crimes we haven't covered here, they actually kept track of how often they were using stolen credit card data. They would measure a few transactions, see if the consumer noticed. If not, cool down for a period and maybe a month later use it again. I mean, it was extremely well orchestrated. And in the end, millions of emails were sent to, computer, uh, to consumers. 60,000 computers were infected. 500 victims' credit card information was stolen and misused. And over tens of thousands of ID information was stolen. And in terms of the auction items we talked about, well, there were over a thousand fraudulent auction items and the resulting amount that was defrauded from people thinking they were buying the cars was between three and $4 million. So there's lots of concluding thoughts we could share with you on this, but in terms of a couple of simple ones, I suppose, don't click on attachments. Particularly during this time, you've all heard about coronavirus scans and lots of other things going on. And this is a great illustration of, if you don't know where the attachment comes from, don't click on it. The other thing is about mules, because the recruitment of the American mules is something that was, it was very well orchestrated, wasn't it? Yes, very much so. I think it served two purposes. It was obviously helped launder the money and it was a, a great delay tactic along with trucking companies and everything else. It, it was a great benefit to the fraudsters. 
And I think this worked very well, as Craig said, because of the delaying tactics and how these folks understood online purchases to take place. It made it very easy for them to quickly maneuver the transfer of money out while keeping people busy during the process of trying to follow up with where's my car gone, who do I go to, and so forth. And especially now. There are a number of people right now who are furloughed or who may have lost their jobs at the moment and may be vulnerable to being approached by criminal organizations like this. Um, It's really important if you are asked to use your own bank account or you know of someone who is to make them aware of these crimes. But also in our transaction monitoring, if we start seeing accounts which otherwise don't regularly receive thousands of pounds or euros in them on a weekly basis, we need to be alert to that. And the idea of just restricting ourselves to $10,000, $15,000 limits won't allow us to catch this type of social engineering fraud. Because Craig, in some ways, it, it is about defrauding the mules as well, isn't it? Yes, I think very much so. It- they saw their chance and took whatever they possibly could. They, the scammers started off doing eBay fraud and eventually they you know, escalated to mining cryptocurrency. They seem very, very much opportunists who, if they saw a chance to take something from someone, whether it was someone who trusted them or not, they were going to do it. It's so complex. It's so clever. It's so, it was so difficult to catch. It's very hard to say how to not fall for a scam like this. I suppose it's, I think one of the most important things is just to do your research and do your due diligence. Be careful what links you click, as you say, and just look and see who you're buying, what you're buying from, and just trust your gut at times. Does it appear to be legitimate? Because more often than not, that's the correct answer. I'd like to thank Craig Wright so much for helping me do this case study presentation. It's been an absolute treat. Please look out for more of our Efficient Frontiers International Case Study Podcast. If you'd like more information about EFI, check them out on their website at efilimited.com. If you'd like to discuss any due diligence, monitoring, or investigation work, or even find out more about their upcoming taxation technology, feel free to reach out to either Lizette Smith-Cullen or Russell Taylor whose contact details can also be found on LinkedIn.